scripture lesson this morning comes from the 16th chapter of Luke, verses 19 through 31. I will be telling the story, but I will be telling it, um, there will be a little bit of variation from the New Revised Standard Version, which is your Pew Bible version. And part of this is because um, the original Greek talks about um, a man going up uh, into to the bosom of Abraham, and that implies a lot more intimacy than up to be with Abraham. So that's just a, a slight verbal adjustment that's actually closer to the Greek. Listen for the word of God. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. This poor man named Lazarus, he wished to to fill himself, to to satiate his hunger with, with the crumbs that would fall from the rich man's table. I mean, even the dog came and licked his wounds. So the poor man, Lazarus, died, and angels came and, and carried him up to be in the bosom of Abraham. The rich man died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw from far away, saw far away, Abraham with Lazarus at his bosom. And he he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus down to me to touch his finger and water and, and touch my tongue. Because I am in agony in these flames. Abraham said to him, Child, you may remember that In your life, you were filled with good things, just as Lazarus was given many evil things. And so now Lazarus is experiencing comfort and you are in agony. And besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us, such that even if someone wanted to come from here to there, they could not. And no one can cross from there to here. So the rich man said, Father Abraham, I beg you, send Lazarus down to my father's house because I have five brothers and if he would just come down, he could warn them and then it would, it would spare them from the torment that I am experiencing here. 
Father Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No. If someone were to come from the dead, back from the dead to to be with them, then they would repent. But Abraham says, If they have not listened to Moses and the prophets, then neither will they consider someone even if he has been raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy God, be with us now. Be with us and all of the stories that we bring to this place. Be with us as we consider the stories of the world. Be with us as we dwell within your story. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So storytelling, you know I like storytelling, and some of you may have a game you play, like how many times is Casey going to say the word story during worship? Um, Maybe just Patrick. Uh, Storytelling. It's used to communicate truth. It is a prophetic act in Scripture. It points us to deeper truths about God and humanity and, and hints at what might be. It invites us to find ourselves within the narrative and provokes us, if we let it, to transcend our own narrative so that we might join God's larger work, join the narrative of the kingdom of God. Some of us will be comforted by these tales, but more often than not, their aim is not to comfort, but to provoke and invite You may remember the story of the prophet Nathan, who came to King David, King David who had recently impregnated somebody else's wife and then taken that somebody else's life, that King David. And what did Nathan do? He told him a story. He told him a story about a a poor man who only had one small little ewe lamb who he loved. He treated that lamb like it was a child of his. That's all he had. And in this story, there was also a rich man who had many, many flocks. And a stranger comes into town. And when a stranger comes into town, you provide a meal and hospitality. So, so the rich man doesn't want to take from his own flock, but takes from that, that little ewe lamb from the poor man. It's one precious lamb. David, King David, listening to this story, becomes enraged. That is terrible. And, and he starts to list what he will do to this, this man. How he will make him pay. To which Nathan, Nathan says, You are the man. And suddenly the story becomes a mirror to David. 
It opens him up to confession. It invites him to repent. It gives him eyes to see. So when Jesus tells this story, and I I should have told you that beforehand, this was the story that Jesus was telling, it is not so much about heaven and hell as it is about here and now. It is not so much about the chasm between one particular guy named Lazarus and one particular rich man. These are characters in Jesus' story but about the chasm between the world God intends for us and the world in which we actually live. It invites us to grow through discomfort, through acknowledging that there might be something of that rich man in us. That was certainly the invitation to the Pharisees to whom Jesus originally told this parable, and it says in Luke just a few verses before, were lovers of money. So as as I was working on this story this week, as I was learning to tell this story, a question arose when I took the voice of the rich man. How did I get here? He does not seem to understand why he, who has enjoyed so many good things, he is used to the good things, why he suddenly dwells in death so far removed from the good things. In this case, the bosom of Abraham or intimacy with God. Things were so good. But now a chasm has been fixed. I suppose this question came up for me because it is a question that I have asked and heard being asked very often these days. How did we get here? I wrote this title to my sermon, How Did We Get Here? After the Explosion in New York after the bags were found in New Jersey, after the mall in Minnesota. I wrote this sermon title, How Did We Get Here?, in searching for links to more information about those bags in New Jersey and in coming across vitriol being spewed against my Muslim brothers and sisters. How did we get here? I wrote... That title with the image of refugees and their children scrolling across my mind. I wrote this sermon title, How Did We Get Here? Thinking about all of the way that language is being used to hurt, especially on the national stage. I wrote the sermon title before I watched a video this week about a town in McDowell County, West Virginia, a town where there was a time that you had to be careful when you were walking down the sidewalk because it was so crowded with people and life, and a town that now looks like it was abandoned long ago, a run-down coal mining town with little prospects for employment and little hope that help is on the way. A forgotten place largely comprised of poor whites trying to find their voice in the conversations of the day. 
I thought of our trips to Appalachia with the Appalachia Service Project and of the people that I met and of all of you who have gone on those trips and heard their stories. How did we get here? I wrote the title to my sermon before the violence of this particular week unfolded, before the stories of two more black men, this time in Tulsa and Charlotte, killed at the hands of law enforcement, before I read the words of my friend and colleague in this presbytery and the co-moderator of the whole Presbyterian church, Denise Anderson, that she wrote, I have growing anxiety about sending my husband out on errands or running them myself for that matter. This world does not love us. It doesn't. How did we get here? There's something about that question, how did we get here? Too often when it's asked, it seems like it's already too late. I think of a couple handing over their divorce papers. How did we get here? It is a question that tends to be asked by people who are at the time surprised and then later on realize maybe, maybe they aren't that surprised after all. It's just that they weren't paying attention. It feels like we are living in a how-did-we-get-here kind of world. Now, in our story, it's, it's too late for the rich man. The chasm is fixed, it says, and, and he reaps what he has sown, and what he has sown is distance from the will of God. He has provided no comfort, no concern, or little at best. He who assumed his value was confirmed by his own riches at the time, which is hence the confusion, I think, when he is being tormented. And this also, by the way, would have been the assumptions of those who were listening in Luke's context, that, that those who had much, had much because God had ordained it. They were being blessed because of something that they had done. So it is a surprise in this story that he is so far removed from God's comfort. comfort. And you may have noticed that in this place of torment, his solution is to have Lazarus come and serve him. Send him down here to cool my tongue. Okay, that's not going to work. Send him to tell my brothers. Send Lazarus. There remains a chasm in his understanding. The rich man, we are told, did not listen to Moses and the prophets. The rich man had power and money as designated by his purple robes and his fine linen. But he did not use it to care for the lowest. The rich man had access to the poor. Lazarus lay at his gate. But he never bothered to know him. Now, interestingly, this is the one parable in which Jesus actually gives somebody a name. And the one who is named is Lazarus. The rich man, he was not concerned with Lazarus' story. He may have known his name, but he was not concerned with his story. He apparently had cares of his own, and I'm sure that he did. He had brothers, after all, and he advocates for them. He had his own family concerns. 
But now, in the story, the chasm has been fixed and it is too late. Now we might hear from this story, you are the man, and see that we are this rich man, and wonder that at, at the chasm having been fixed, but I don't think Jesus tells us this story to teach us a story that it's a it's not a it's not a sorry, it's too late lesson. What would be the point of that? As I said at the start, while Jesus' stories often discomfort, they are always invitational. So where's the invitation? I think the invitation is to see ourselves in the place of the brothers. We will have to decide. Will we follow the path of the rich man, or will we close the chasm between the world that is and the kingdom of God while we are here and now? Jesus' invitation is an invitation to notice, to to engage, to reprioritize, to listen to the stories of others, not just know the name of the man on the street, but to know who he is, to confess and turn through our own storytelling, to be invitational, to share what is not ours to share, but is God's, and to repeat. The reality is that this is going to be a very messy process. I used the example of marriage earlier. Anyone that has worked on their marriage will know to close the chasm takes a lot of work, a lot of messy work. Things often seem harder before they get better. It requires confession and grace and trust in the God who promises to be faithful. But this particular week, those who know me will not be surprised to know that my heart and mind have been particularly fixed on the issue of race over the last few years and so fixed on the stories coming out of Charlotte. The unrest in Charlotte is not a surprise to me. It, is, it will not be a surprise to me if something along those lines happens here. Because it has happened in so many other places. Not because something new is occurring in terms of racism, but because something is being unveiled. I've been watching the news out of Charlotte, but more than watching the news, I have been listening closely for the voices of my clergy friends who serve there, wondering how they are addressing their congregations and living within their communities during this time. So I wanted to share just a a few brief Reflections. My friend and colleague in the Presbyterian Church, Lori Archer-Raybal, reports, So many protesters. These images of brutality tonight do reflect the brokenness and deep pain. But they neglect the complexity and shared prayer of justice and healing. We must be the church Another Presbyterian pastor, Penn Peary, writes, Here's what I know. Right now, there are people in Charlotte, black and white, who are planning good, hard, constructive conversations. There are people in Charlotte, black and white, who are praying together and working for a new reality where there is justice for all. 
And as I watch CNN as they wait, as CNN waits almost desperately for violence to erupt, I would encourage you to believe a different narrative. Charlotte has a race problem. We need more than talk. We need change. And I believe we will learn from this expression of pain and anger. We must and we will. And finally, from Reverend Nicole Martin, another pastor in the Charlotte area. Tonight, I joined my friend to participate in the Charlotte protest uptown. I witnessed worship as resistance from a college gospel choir. I saw common ground converted to holy ground through prayers and affirmations written on the street where a civilian died. I saw police officers and military engaging in friendly gestures toward civilians. I connected with fellow clergy members, smiled at familiar faces, affirmed the freedom of expression, and paused to consider all that is at stake. There are so many variables, but more than all of this, there is hope. Things are not good. We must work toward truth and fight for justice. There is much to be done, and in the midst of all of this, she writes, there is hope. The story is about understanding how we got here so that we might get there. How do we close the chasm and do better? And the story hints. It's about relationships. I was thinking about the ways in which we speak to one another and the ways in which we engage these hard conversations that tend to set us all in our respective corners. And just then an email popped in my uh, inbox, popped up in my inbox from Kirk Martin, who has come here to speak on parenting, of all things. Uh, he practices something he calls Celebrate Calm, Calm Parenting. And he was getting ready to speak in Charlotte the same week. Listen to his words and see if they might have bearing for any number of parts of your life right now. Charlotte's situation, reads the subject, it's never black and white. Says they'll be speaking in Charlotte Monday and Tuesday, and I want to add some perspective to the current situation there. I'm tired of watching news shows with guests screaming over each other. But then I realize we do that with our spouses and kids and students all the time. These situations are never black and white. When we get emotional, we tend only to see things from one perspective and become blinded. What ultimately develops is this. One, each side feels misunderstood or victimized and refuses to take ownership over their part of the situation. And two, each side casts the other as the villain. Because when I assume the worst about your intentions, that means I don't have to listen to insight you may have that could cause me to change. It allows me to insulate myself from change and demand that you do all the changing. And when that happens in any relationship, no reconciliation is possible. Read, the chasm is fixed. Both sides are doing this, he writes. What each person or group wants, though, is to feel heard and understood. To have others assume the best about their intentions 
and to know the other person is taking ownership for their part in the situation. When we practice this at churches and schools, we begin by acknowledging the other person's feelings are legitimate, period. No excuses or qualifications. And then we take ownership for the part we play in the situation. And so he ends with an invitation. Let's start closer to home before we address the national landscape. I think this is Jesus' invitation. I think he invites us to do both. But I think this is Jesus' invitation. To start at home. To start in our homes with how we speak to one another. To start in this church. How are we going to have hard conversations? This week, Larry and Patrick and I met with Tim Foley on behalf of Tim and Natalie Foley, who came to us a couple of months ago asking to engage in conversation around rape. We talked about wanting to be organic and intentional about relationships that we begin to form. And you'll hear more about this in the coming months. But the idea is that we are the church and we must be the church. We know how to do this hard work. We know how to tell our stories and to speak with hope into the future, to create the kingdom that is not yet here and that is already coming. We know how to do this work because we have the stories of God and the hope of Jesus Christ. And so we will be the church. And we will do this hard work together. Amen.